This is Car Expert. When you do that maths, it really makes a lot of sense to be looking at the Chevy because it does feel significantly better off-road than the LTZ. It's like the perfect combination of like a little bit Golf, a little bit Polo, a little bit ID. I feel like this is how Volkswagen should be going. It's absolutely no fun to drive. It's about as much fun as, as taking a bus to the dentist. Hello and welcome to the Car Expert Podcast. I am not Mandy Turner. Mandy is currently driving her Volkswagen Beetle across Australia. Uh, She's a little bit insane, but at our most recent update, the car is running and she's having a great time. So we won't be having any Mandy this week or next week, but we do have back on the panel full time, Jack Quick. Hello, Scott. Yes, I am back full time in the full-length glory. (laughs) It's what we've all been waiting for. Now, Jack, you're the current proud owner of a Suzuki Jimny, but I understand you've driven something recently that may have you adding a new car to your garage. Yes, yeah, the Suzuki Jimny. Mine is a a 2020 model and I've kind of got over, the novelty's worn off essentially. Uh, If you haven't already seen the Jimny, I'm I'm sure you have, but it's very small, boxy and sure it has its place, time and place, but for me that no longer seems to be the case and I um, I recently got the opportunity to drive and I'm going to be eventually reviewing once I get around to it, um, the the 2023 uh, Subaru Outback Sport, uh, the non-turbo version because due to reasons I can't technically drive the turbo one yet for work but regardless I so I drove the um the Outback Sport and I loved it if I haven't already told uh, talked about it on the podcast I'm originally from a regional area and um, I took uh, this Outback Sport on a long road trip all the way home uh, to my family's farm and back which is around about 700-ish Ks in round trip and it was just fantastic and it makes me want to get one so badly. I So much so that I went to my local Subaru dealer, got a quote, this, that and the other and asked about wait times because it's just like an ideal car for what I'll be driving the, what the situations are while I'll be driving it in because I have so many press cars that I'm driving now for reviews and work all the time that the my personal car is only really when I'm doing longer trips and that's not perfect for the Jimny. I don't love driving that on the highway. It revs about 3,000 revs at 100 and then 3,500 at 110. So, I feel like it's a logical choice and I reckon I could get a little bit of money for the Jimny, but we'll have to wait and see. So along with the Subaru, is there anything else you're considering? I know you've been talking about maybe a V-dub. I know you've driven some other stuff recently that caught your eye. What else is on the short list? Don't even get me started. There are a lot. <laughs> um, I've been really liking a whole heap of Skodas at the moment. Um, I was at a dealer over the weekend and I saw a really nice um, superb Scout that looked absolutely delicious. I, I'm really liking the the lifted wagon body style. I know it's a little bit cliche to like kind of reject SUVs and all that kind of fun stuff and go for a wagon. But I, yeah, so like superb Scout for that like off-road-ish ability, but I'm also quite a fan of the the Karok. Um, and beyond that, I quite like the the Volkswagen Passat of various um, variations and all that kind of fun stuff. And beyond that, I 
I'm a big fan of the Kia Sportage too. Uh, I reckon that'd be in my at least my top five. I have a lot. I, I like a lot of cars, and it changes weekly. It's a long, short list, uh, but we'll be sure to check back in before you actually uh, put your money down on a new car. Before we get there, we're going to talk about some car news. We're joined this week for car news by Jade Credentino. And Jade, Volkswagen wants to make electric vehicles more affordable. Yeah, that's right, Scott. So over the last few days, Volkswagen has released a new concept, which they actually plan to launch in 2025. Now, the concept is called the ID2 All. It is going to be priced under 25,000 euro, which sits around 40,000 Australian dollars. Now, Volkswagen says that it will be as spacious as the Golf, but as cute as the Polo on the outside. Um, now, it sits at around 4,000 and 50 millimeters long so it's quite a compact electric vehicle the range sits at 450 kilometers it has 166 kilowatts of power and has a top speed of 160 kilometers per hour now the this will be the first model that is built on the med architecture that will offer front wheel drive what do you guys think of this new concept and do you think it will do well in Australia? I think it is such a cute little thing. It's like the perfect combination of like a little bit golf, a little bit polo, a little bit ID. I feel like this is how we sh- Volkswagen should be going ahead. I'm not a huge fan personally, at least anyway, of the ID stuff. So it's kind of um, great to see uh, Volkswagen leaning into its lineage and current uh, portfolio of vehicles, internal combustion vehicles, uh, that is. And I just wanted to mention one little thing uh, in addition to this. Although this may seem like a small compact EV, Volkswagen has also confirmed that there's going to be a smaller um, version of this coming uh, around a similar time frame. I can't remember. I think this is because, um, as you mentioned, Jade, this is 25,000 euros. This smaller one is going to be 20,000 euros when uh, directly converted from euros to Australian dollars is roughly like 30 grand. So, and um, uh, James would hate if I didn't mention this, but it could be like a potential uh, successor to the E-Up. That's what he was dead set. This uh, smaller electric uh, Volkswagen will kind of be. Um, But yeah, I think this uh, particular ID to all concept is super duper cool. I love that there could be a GTI version. It kind of seems kind of limitless and I'm a big fan. Awesome. From one EV to another, Jade, Kia has revealed the EV9 and it looks exactly like the concept car. Yeah, that's right. So for once, the concept car in reality looks very, very similar. Now, EV, uh, sorry, Kia has released its latest electric offering with the EV9, as you just mentioned. Now, it's set to be launched before the end of this year in Australia. Now, we have confirmed that there will be 400 coming uh, to Australia in the first year. So, the concept first previewed in 2021 uh, and, like Scott mentioned, mostly has remained the same. Now, the interior has had a little bit of a change, actually, which you can see the full pictures via our website. Kia has made a massive focus on what they call a tiger face design language, which will feature in most of Kia's future EV models as well. 
Now, it sits on the electric global modular platform that also underpins the EV6, the Hyundai Ionic 5, and Ionic 6. You can get the EV9 in three-row configuration with either six or seven seats. I want to know what do you guys think of the EV9 and how well it will do in Australia? I think the problem with this is not going to be demand. It's going to be supply, as is the case with pretty much everything else electric in the Hyundai and Kia world at the moment. Um, One of those spaces that electric vehicles don't really fill at the moment is the large family car. You can get a city sedan or a hatchback, an SUV, but something bigger again that can fit seven people in their luggage comfortably isn't really available unless you look at a people mover like the very expensive Mercedes um, Viano EV. Uh, so Kia is definitely filling a niche there. I think the other thing is it's going to be expensive for Kia, given the EV6 is already a 70-odd thousand dollar car before you go to the GT. But I think there are plenty of people willing to pay that given how good this thing looks. So yeah, it's a tick on the segment they're trying to fill. They're going to be quite early to the market. And it's also a tick on how the product actually looks. And uh, I think it'll go uh, super well in Australia too. But I just wanted to mention one feature in particular that I think is super cool. And it obviously, as you mentioned, Jade, a lot of the features carry over from the concept. And this one has stuck around, which is really cool. It's the second row has uh, special swiveling seats, which I would love to see if that's going to be coming to Australia. But um, I love that the kind of concept-like features are bleeding into real life and um, going to be very cool to see. Now, over at Mercedes, we're not talking about an EV for the people or a seven-seat EV. We're talking about a coupe SUV. Jade, there's a new BMW X4 rival in the GLC range. Yeah, that's right, Scott. So Mercedes-Benz have revealed the second-generation GLC coupe. Now, a spokesperson for Mercedes-Benz says that it will arrive locally in the fourth quarter of this year. Now, the new model is 31 millimetres longer, 5 millimetres taller, and 15 millimetre longer wheelbase. It has launched in Europe with two petrol, two diesel, and three plug-in hybrid powertrains. All are all-wheel drive with a nine-speed automatic transmission. Now, Australia hasn't yet been confirmed for what powertrains we will receive, but I want to know what do you guys think Mercedes-Benz will look to launch with and if they might go into the plug-in hybrid space with this? I like your optimism, Jade, is <laughs> how I would say. Um, so if you didn't already know, the Wagon GLC uh, is launching in Australia with one variant. That is the GLC 300. And if that is the case, I assume it's going to be a similar story for this sleeker-looking GLC coupe Um Although I'd love to, I'm coming James, but the optimism would be like, I'd love to see the plug-in hybrids come to Australia. But the reality is Mitsubishi, Mercedes Benz Australia has kind of pivoted towards going from plug-in hybrids to all electric. So that's say, oh, get an EQS SUV or EQE SUV instead. Um, but I do really think, I, I know that it's really peculiar, but I'm so fascinated with the diesel plug-in hybrids. They seem so efficient and um, I don't know if they'd make sense in Australia. So Mercedes probably has the right decision, but we'll have to wait and see what engines I suppose the GLC Coupe will come in. 
Uh, the, the plug-in hybrid won't be here, I can say with some confidence. Uh, Mercedes has actually told us that it's not really interested in FEVs in Australia anymore. Um, that's on the back of slow sales for some of the models. Uh, they still offer, I believe, maybe one or two in the AMG range locally, but ultimately I think it's going to be a fairly simple petrol range and then the fully electric EQC when the next gen rolls around. Uh, whether or not that's a bad thing, I'm not so sure because as cool as the idea of a, a diesel FEV is, I ultimately think that if you drive a short enough distance to use the electric range, you should just buy an electric car. And if you need the diesel engine, just buy a diesel car. Don't try to have both in one go. But I've had plenty of arguments with people in the office about that one. Now, to round out car news this week, Jade, let's talk Sangyong. What has it revealed recently? Yeah, so continuing on with the electric powertrain chat, Sanyong has revealed its electric powertrain for the Taurus SUV. It was previously codenamed the U100, and the model will sit just above the Corando E-Motion. It will be revealed in person at the 2023 Seoul Mobility Show in March 30 to April 9. Now, Sanyong has released photos of the new model that depict a thoroughly revised front end with a completely different front grille, bumper, and lighting. Now, prototypes that were previously spied feature a camouflage rear end, so we expect to be some changes there as well. Now, powertrain specifications are not yet released. However, we can expect them to be closely related to the Corando E-Motion. What do you guys think? I think it looks a little Jeep-like to me, especially from the front. That grille has uh, that special kind of, I uh, say special, the um, this typical like the seven slots that's Jeep-esque. I, I can't count that, that quickly, but it looks like seven to me. Um, it's very Jeep Renegade, Jeep Avenger, um, very boxy, rugged SUV, small SUV that is. And, um, yeah, so we don't know if it's going to be coming to Australia at this stage, but uh, Sangyong Australia has previously said that all models are under consideration. So I'd love to see if it comes to Australia, but I don't know at this stage. I think I think it would do well. I reckon it looks pretty cool too. Sangyong has solid sales in Australia already, uh, even though it's been through the ringer business-wise, even though it's got a fairly limited range. There are a group of people who really love their Musos uh, and who also really enjoy what the Rexton offers for the money. So I think whatever Sangyong brings here, there will be an audience for. It's just going to be a matter of whether the new owners over in Korea can build enough of them and get them over here quickly enough for it to actually be relevant. Now, for more on that story and everything else we've written this week, head to carexpert.com.au. Jade, thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Now, a new brand is always exciting, especially when it's a new brand that maybe we've heard of before, but sort of making a bit of a return to Australia. William Stopford has had our first taste of new cherry products in Australia, and he's got some thoughts on the Emoto 5. Will, what did you think? Well, I was counting how many seconds until somebody made a cherry pun and we couldn't even get to 10. <laughs> I was going to start with cherry is pitting the Emoto 5 against the likes of the MGZST and, and GWM Havel Jolly on, but uh, you beat me to a pun. Look, I think all, I suspect all the cherry puns are done by now. So let's get into the vehicle itself. Cherry, uh, for those of you who may recall, was here about 10 years ago. They sold cars from 2011 to 2014 and they pulled out of the market. Um, it was a little bit awkward. Um, they 
their cars were criticised for poor safety. Uh, they had two and three star ANCAP ratings. Then there was a recall for asbestos of all things. So they kind of left the Australian market with their tail between their legs. But if we've learned one thing over the past 10 years, it's that you should never discount a Chinese automaker. That industry as a whole has come absolute leaps and bounds over 10 years. And, and you know, we said the same thing about people used to say the same thing about Japanese cars and Korean cars when they first came out. The first, you know, Toyotas weren't really that flash. The first Hyundai's weren't all that flash. Um, and so here we are, Cherry's back. Their cars have improved dramatically. But let's talk about how the Emoto 5 actually fits within its segment and how it stacks up. Oh, right. So it is interesting because that, that segment is now getting quite crowded. We've got the Havel Jolly on. We've got competitors from traditional brands like Kia, Hyundai, Toyota. Um, Size-wise, is the Emoto 5 a match for something like a Kona or is it a little bit bigger like a Jolly on or is it bigger again like a Mazda CX-5? Uh, so it is a small SUV. Uh, Cherry is planning on introducing a couple of slightly larger SUVs, the Tiggo 7 Pro, <laughs> sorry, funny name, and the Tiggo 8 Pro later this year. Um, the Emoto 5 is probably similar in size to something like a, like a ZST or, or a Jolion. Um, when you first kind of open the rear doors, you think, oh, maybe there's not enough space, but there were what, four of us driving around um, one weekend and, you know, all roughly kind of six foot um, adult males and you know there was there was plenty of space inside the cabin and the cabin when you open those doors it really does um, create a good first impression um, there's lots of interesting materials that have been used there are these kind of coppery accents along the center console um, you know you've got leather you've got sort of brushed metal looking trim it's it's all quite flash but when you dig a little bit deeper, um, that's where the, the Emoto 5 starts to lose its shine. Some of the plastics are a little bit cheap looking. You know, fair enough. It's a pretty cheap SUV in, in the grand scheme of things. But it's the technology where the Emoto 5 really, really, really falls down. Um, we had a just endless troubles just trying to connect to Android Auto, which was just a pain. But that was fine because you don't need Android Auto. There's no satellite navigation, so you kind of do need Android Auto, Android Auto actually, um, or Apple CarPlay um, if you're planning on uh, navigating somewhere. Uh, but the driver assist features in this car were so unbelievably bad. Very, very, very poorly calibrated. And look, I'm hoping Cherry can fix this sooner rather than later. Um and I'll give you an example. Um, I'll give you the, the most frustrating example, and that is the driver attention alert. So when you sit behind the very lovely steering wheel of the Emoto 5, the steering wheel is probably the nicest part of the whole cabin, um, there's a little camera right on top of the steering column. And that's a driver monitoring camera. Now, that's not really all that new. There are plenty of cars that have some kind of driver attention monitoring or whatever. Um, usually in those cars, it actually works. Um, in the Cherry, it just would not shut up. So just to test it, I went for a drive along a freeway, staring directly ahead of me. Um, no sunglasses, didn't move my hair, didn't go and adjust the screen or anything like that. Over about, what, 20 kilometers, probably went off about 20 times. This thing just would not shut up. At one point, um, 
uh, one of these driver assist features just kept blaring for 30 seconds without interruption. Um, so that's the driver attention monitoring, which is just enough to drive you batty. Then there's the lane keep assist and emergency lane keeping features, which you can drive in a straight line, perfectly centered within your lane. And this car will just jerk the steering wheel. So I would turn off the lane keep assist. You go into a menu, it's relatively, it's, it's relatively straightforward to turn these things off. There's not a physical button, but you can do it in the touchscreen. That's fine. Um, but some of these features default to on, like the driver attention monitoring, like um, the emergency lane keeping assist. And even with just the emergency lane keeping assist on now, I think Cherry's definition of, of an emergency is very different to mine because, again, driving in a straight line, centered in my lane, and the car would just jerk the steering wheel. Now, that's just – I can just imagine someone who's a little bit more of a nervous driver being absolutely terrified. Yeah, well, it's got to be disconcerting when these systems are there to help you and they sort of feel like they're getting in your way or actively trying to take control of the car. It's something we've seen quite a bit in – earlier sort of iterations of cars that are new to Australia. Is it something that Cherry says they can update? At this point, uh, no, we haven't heard about um, a specific update being planned, but that's something certainly we'll be following up with Cherry about um, because I, I know I'm not the only person uh, to have raised the same uh, complaint about the vehicle. Now, Will, kind of moving on from this, I suppose, how is the, I'd love to know what the powertrain experience was like and did it have enough power? What was the fuel economy uh, on your test when you had it? Uh, look, the powertrain is probably the best part of the Emoto 5. That's not to say it's just an amazing class-leading, world-beating uh, powertrain. But when you're looking at rivals like the Havel Jolly on the Mitsubishi ASX, etc., cetera, uh, this stacks up quite well. So it's a small 1.5-litre turbocharged four-cylinder engine. It's made it with a CVT. I know a lot of Chinese brands love dual-clutch automatics. And Cherry actually is bringing out a more powerful 1.6 later this year that will have a dual-clutch. But this has just got a CVT. And honestly, the powertrain is pretty smooth. There's enough power for overtaking. There's enough power for zipping around town. The CVT doesn't make too much of a racket. Um, the car makes a, a little bit of a racket in terms of wind noise coming into the cabin, including from the sunroof, even when it's closed for some reason. Um, but honestly, the, the powertrain is probably the, the best part about the car. Um, now, fuel economy wasn't fantastic. And I, I, I want to kind of caution this with, you know, car hasn't been fully broken in yet maybe this might improve with time um but the official claim the official combined cycle claim is 6.9 liters per 100 kilometers does run on 91 uh regular unleaded so that's good um but over a loop we saw 9.3 liters per 100 kilometers and over the course of several days with the car it got to 8.4 so yeah not spectacular I know a lot of vehicles in this like affordable SUV space have a really good warranty and servicing program. What's Cherry's take on this uh, in Australia with this latest uh, smash at the Australian market? Yeah, look, I can. I imagine some people would be a little bit worried about uh, Cherry sticking around, um, considering they were only sold cars here last time around was twenty eleven to twenty fourteen. Um, so. They are inspiring some confidence in buyers by offering um, a 
seven-year unlimited kilometer warranty, which kind of in this budget and the market, that's almost expected nowadays. Um, there is also seven years of cap price service, servicing and seven years of roadside assistance. Um, first five services capped at $280 each. So overall, the after-sales package is, is pretty decent. Um but I'm not sure it's it's necessarily a car that you'd want to have for seven years, judging by the way it drives. So, Will, Cherry obviously is going to learn from this. We've seen Havel and GWM, which are not related to Cherry, but our Chinese brands have responded really quickly to feedback from Australia when the car launched. Um, if you were to say to Cherry, here are your top three priorities, what would they be? And what are you hoping to see when the Tigo Pro models arrive, hopefully later this year? I'm actually a little bit concerned about the Tigo Pro models because Cherry has said with the Omoto 5 that it's like their first global model that's been developed, you know, uh, simultaneously in left and right-hand drive. It's been developed with global markets in mind. Now, the Tigo models that will come here will likely be updated models, but they are, you know, they will effectively be models that have already been on sale for a little bit of time. Um, Cherry has said that they are open to um, uh, a local kind of ride and handling uh, tuning program, um, which obviously they, they did not employ for the Emoto 5. I would say that would be a priority for them. But first and foremost, it's, it's addressing these, these driver assist systems. Um, they're just diabolically awful. Um, in terms of the way it drives, if you're just zipping around town, the Emoto 5 is probably decent. As I said, the powertrain is quite good um, for for this price point. Um, and, but where it really falls flat is the, the ride and handling. Fundamentally, if you take it out on a country road, uh, this thing just heaves and porpoises down the road. It's very, very, very softly sprung. Now, I don't get me wrong. I like a car that's a, a little bit on the softer side of things. I don't think everything should be a sports car with a rock hard ride. Um, but this is just so spongy and the steering is so light and dead that you, it's absolutely no fun to drive. It's, it's about as much fun as, as, as taking a bus to the dentist. Um, so, I would say that that's something that needs to be addressed there. Just just make the just adjust the ride so it's not quite so floaty and spongy. Um, as for a third priority, well, I think they've they've really got to put their work in and show people that they are here to stay. They are taking the Australian market seriously. Um, this this car seems a lot more suited to 2023 Australia than the last Cherry products were to 2011 Australia, but. One fundamental difference here with the with the Cherry Motor 5 is they have priced the vehicle up against rival Chinese SUVs, but actually slightly higher. When you compare base prices between the Motor 5 and something like a ZST or a Jolion, it's actually slightly higher. Now, if you rewind back to Cherry last time around when they it wasn't a factory-backed um, operation, it was uh, a Tico was importing them, the vehicles were dirt cheap like absolutely bottom of the barrel, the cheapest vehicles you could buy, and not just in the way they felt, but actually in the way they were priced. Um, the Cherry J1, which they discontinued because it didn't have electronic stability control from memory, and that was being mandated. So you can see how the company's approach to safety has really changed since then with you know a five-star Euro and cap rating for this. Um, but that Cherry J1 was actually under 10 grand. And I know that there were a lot more cheap, you know, sub 15 grand cars back then, but that was still a very, very, very low price. So Cherry's come along way in terms of the level of safety equipment that they offer, the level of comfort and convenience features that they offer. It seems to have all the most modern technology, um, 
but uh, they're also charging more relative to rivals or ch- than, than they did previously. So, Will, where did you land with the car's rating and how does that stack up against maybe a Jolly On and then something from like Toyota, for example? I mean, I don't want to write this car off as, as just being rubbish. I mean, there's there's definitely some key elements that need to be addressed. I would not buy one. I would not recommend one at this point in time. If Cherry can address those issues that, that I noted, then that will make this a lot easier to recommend. For now, it doesn't stack up as well as something like a ZST, which has its own share of foibles, you know, four-star and cap rating, uh, touchscreen interface that's really not that great. Um and uh, a Havel Jolion, which is, you know, pretty, you know, an all right car for the class, but again, hardly a class leader. Um, so overall, this did get a score of, let me refresh my memory here, <laughs> 7.3 out of 10. Um, we'll just have to wait and see if, if Cherry will kind of take the Australian market seriously and and make the changes that it needs to make. Because the car does make a good impression, at, but my overwhelming kind of feeling from the car is Cherry is focused more on that kind of showroom flash than on, than on real substance. Um, it looks, you know, really striking outside. It looks really striking inside. It seems to have a huge list of features. Um, but when you just dig a little bit deeper, this Cherry isn't quite right for the picking. Okay, um, I said I wasn't going to do another pun, but we just got to squeeze one in. If you don't hear from Will after this week's podcast, it's because he's been fired for making terrible puns. Uh, Will's full review is live on carexpert.com.au and Paul's video review of that car is also live on YouTube. Make sure you go and check them out. Now, from the cherry, we're going to keep Will on here to talk about the Chevrolet Silverado. Uh, Not because he drove it, because I drove it, but because, Will, I know you love a big American car. So, what were you hoping for from this new Silverado? And we can talk about whether it's maybe met those expectations. So we've gone from Cherry to Chevy. Uh, just changed one letter. Mm, very strange that name's so similar. Um, look, I'm a fan of a big American car, big American pickup truck, maybe not so much. But having sat in the Silverado and driven it a little bit at our uh, Use of the Year competition, along with the Ram 1500, uh, my overwhelming impression was, well, <laughs> this is a lot of fun to drive. Uh, maybe not so much fun to park. But this interior just isn't as nice as the uh, Ram 1500. But I understand that it's been a pretty significant change made there for 2023. Yeah, it's a huge upgrade. And that was one of the major issues with the last Silverado. Uh, Like you say, Will, it looked fantastic on the outside. It drives really quite well. But inside it had a little 8-inch touchscreen, which maybe in a Golf looks okay. But in a car the size of Victoria, uh, it sort of got lost on the dashboard there. It also looked and felt a bit cheap compared to the Ram 1500. This new upgrade is primarily focused on the interior and the tech. In the case of the LTZ Premium, which is a carryover trim level, you get a new 13.4-inch touchscreen infotainment system and a fully digital dashboard as well. And the result of that is a car that all of a sudden feels geared up to take on the Ram 1500. It's actually really nicely put together. All the buttons and bits and pieces we touched felt good, and that's not always the case with cars that have been remanufactured. And all the changes that Chevy have made, they don't feel kind of slapdash or haphazard, which is sometimes the case with midlife updates. Rather than trying to squeeze new tech into the old dashboard, they've just redesigned the dashboard completely. 
The other thing that's really changed inside is that the column shifter, which is an American car staple that makes me feel like I'm in a, a 1960s movie, has finally been removed. I know it sounds like a small thing, but trying to park the old Silverado was a bit frustrating because you'd pull the big column shifter out from the transmission tunnel, you'd clunk it into the wrong gear. It was very frustrating. Chevy has now finally put a, a normal selector on the transmission tunnel and it is significantly better. So lots of points for the interior upgrade. The other big change for 2023 is the inclusion of a new ZR2 model, which under the skin has got some really sophisticated dampers from Multimatic, which make race dampers essentially. It's got some off-road ready bumpers and uh, locking front and rear differentials. Uh, I know you guys are both fans of the Ranger Raptor. Do you like the way the ZR2 looks? I am indeed a big fan. It looks very big and tough. I unfortunately wasn't at the the dual cab uh, Ute of the Year um, thing that we did earlier and um, I would have loved to have been because I reckon seeing the Silverado and kind of seeing how big it is, uh, I wish I was there. But this ZR2 looks great. I just I love the colour that it's into and all the hero images. It's this really cool blue colour and uh, I reckon with the V8 in it, you could do some very cool stuff off-road. So one of the things with a lot of the big off-road oriented or off-road marketed pickups in Australia is they're not actually that good off-road. Uh, our recent Ute Mega Test showed that a lot of the top spec cars are very capable, but there is a big difference between something like a Ranger Raptor and a, a regular dual cab Ute with sort of some exterior add-ons designed to look tough. Uh, the Chevrolet ZR2 falls into the Ranger Raptor category. It's got some proper hardware upgrades in the form of those Multimatic dampers. It's got better approach and departure angles because of its new bumpers. It's got extra underbody protection. And one of the big criticisms we had of the LTZ Premium in our Ute Mega Test was that when you got yourself stuck, you couldn't manually engage the rear differential lock. You had to feed in some throttle and then it would clunk into place automatically and kind of jerk you out of a tight spot. The ZR2 now has locking front and rear diffs, and you can do it from inside the cabin. So we actually tested this out over some offset mobiles and got the wheels hanging in the air. The car got itself a little bit stuck, and then you press a button on the dash, the rear diff engages smoothly, and you can just drive straight out, which is a massive improvement. I know the um, you've criticized the Trail Boss for missing some features that you'd kind of expect for a vehicle of that price, but this new ZR2, how does it stack up against the, obviously, the very luxe LTZ and are there any features that you think should be there that are missing? I heard that little American Z there, Will. Um, the LTZ uh, does come fully loaded. It's got adaptive cruise and a full range of active safety features. Uh, the ZR2 doesn't have quite the same suite, but it does have autonomous emergency braking now, which it didn't previously have, and is one of the big features that really, if you're spending $120,000 to be honest, if you're spending $20,000 on a new car, it really should have. Um, it gets regular cruise control. And in a car like this where you're, you may be towing, I mean, the LTZ is more aimed at people who are towing or spending long times on the highway, adaptive cruise is very handy. The other thing you miss out on is front parking sensors and a head-up display. The head-up display I can take or leave. Uh, I'm not a big fan of head-up displays in general. And the one in the Silverado is one of very few areas where it kind of feels like the car has been a little bit awkwardly retrofitted. It doesn't seem quite aligned properly to be on the right-hand side of the dash. So that I can do without. But this car is massive with really quite poor visibility over the front. I know you get surround view cameras, but if you want to be looking out of the car, parking sensors are really handy up front. And that is definitely one feature that 
I understand why they're gone. It's because of that cutaway front bumper that looks so tough, but you will notice the loss of. You mentioned there, Scott, that there were some uh, awkward things when the transition, obviously, from left-hand to right-hand drive. Was there any awkwardness that you experienced in your driving loop that you experienced? No, so the drive was actually really polished. Uh, with older converted cars or remanufactured cars, one of the things that people would often talk about is awkwardness in the steering because the steering would be transferred from one side of the car to the other with a chain or with a belt and it could slip and there was all sorts of stuff going on there. There's none of that present in the Silverado. It feels very OE or you know original manufacturer, for want of a better term, to uh, to drive on the uh, on the open road. Um, it also the ones that we drove didn't have any major squeaks or rattles or problems with them, and that was our experience of the car we had on the Ute Mega Test as well. So on that front, I understand that it's not rolled out of the factory in right hand drive from Chevrolet, but. The remanufacturing operation in Australia now is pretty significant between uh, the GMSV stuff, the Ram stuff, the Tundra that's upcoming and the Ford F-150. There's quite a bit of expertise here in doing it and that does show in the quality of the product. Uh, I think the other thing worth mentioning is that on the road, there's stuff that these utes will do regardless of remanufacturing that normal dual cabs just won't. The LTZ is still bigger and more comfortable and quieter and more capable than a Ranger or a Hilux on the open road and the fact it's got a V8 means it sounds great, but also means when you hook something up to the back of it, it's got a bit more in reserve for towing. So Ram's uh, pickup truck range has been doing better than ever um, in the US market, uh, where obviously it's from uh, relative to GM. Now, obviously Ram has that kind of first mover advantage here with its factory backed operation and GMSV has come along later with the Silverado. Uh, so Ram sales still continue to outpace the Silverado, but you spoke about how this is just such a fundamental change in terms of interior ambience, uh, a better suited off-road edition as well. So do you think the Silverado is the choice in, in, in this segment or do you think the Ram still comes up ahead? I think for me, if you were buying a car to tow with and to spend lots of time in the city with, I think the Ram potentially shapes as a better vehicle. Uh, the LTZ I really enjoy. I think I prefer the interior of the Chev. But in our Ute Mega Test, we did see that the Ram 1500 Laramie was a more capable tow car than the Chevy. It just had slightly better controlled suspension. And I think that really does need to count for something in these cars because ultimately you're not buying, I mean, some people are buying them as fashion statements, but they are really tools for a job and that job is towing big, heavy things. I think if you want to go off-road, that's flipped. The ZR2 really is quite a sophisticated off-roader. Um, in the US, it's priced not that far off the Ram 1500 TRX. In Australia, it undercuts it by about 80 grand. And when you do that maths, it really makes a lot of sense to be looking at the Chevy because it does feel significantly better off-road than the LTZ. It's got that control about it that you sort of miss out on in, in the standard car. It doesn't bounce around. Uh, you really do feel quite confident nosing up to pretty steep inclines and that sort of thing because of the new front bumpers. And those diff locks give it an extra degree of capability that you just don't get in the standard LTZ. I think also, and this doesn't necessarily count for much, but the ZR2 is kind of unique in that it feels like a bespoke off-roader in a segment where pretty much everything else is aimed at towing and hauling and driving on the road. Uh, with the exception of the very expensive TRX, the Ram range runs from Laramie to Limited and they're luxury and more luxury. Uh, the Ford F-150 range runs from 
uh, XLT to Lariat, and that's from sort of workhorse to, to mid-range. So the fact that Chevy offers something with a dedicated off-road look and dedicated off-road spec will help the Silverado stand out among the crowd. So I think the ZR2 is probably the one of the two and of the, the American utes on sale in Australia currently that I'd want. I think it's also worth bearing in mind that with a Ranger Raptor, when you step down from a regular Ranger, you lose quite a lot in the way of towing capacity. Uh, it, it's not designed to do that. The ZR2 has a 4,200 kilogram brake towing capacity instead of a 4,500 kilogram towing capacity. So you do lose some ability, but we drove the car with a sort of call it two and a half to three ton boat hooked up. I can't remember exactly how heavy it was off the top of my head. Um, and if you were going really heavy hauling, I'd probably be looking at the LTZ Premium. But for for big objects that you know aren't pushing the top end of your your ability to to tow in terms of weight, the LTZ still felt very capable with that hooked up at the back. It wasn't like a boat with the nose up in the air. It didn't feel uncontrolled at the rear. Chevy still has maintained some sort of focus on towing for that car. It's just not the only thing it's designed to do. So I think that extra capability, and we're going to need to put it through the same test as all the other utes to actually find out how it stacks up. But based on our initial impression, it still has maintained some ability to tow there as well, which makes it quite a capable sort of vehicle with a broad spectrum of abilities. To check out our full review of the Silverado, head to carexpert.com.au. That is already live. Uh, and keep an eye out for when we eventually get the car through to hopefully tow with it and take it off-road just like we did in our Ute Mega Test. That is a wrap on another week of the Car Expert podcast. Before we head out, Jack, let's go through what is going to be in the garage. Yeah, Scott, we've got some really cool cars coming through this week. Um, in particular, in Melbourne, I'm going to be driving the Kia Nero EVS, which is the entry-level entry level model with the halogen headlights. I'm really looking forward to that model in particular. Um, I'm going to be doing a review on that at some point in the future. We'll have to wait and see when that happens, but it is coming. Beyond that, though, we have a Ford Ranger Raptor. We have a Honda HRV e, uh, HEV L, which is the hybrid model also have a subaru forester 2.5 i sport which has all the orange accents if you haven't seen that model before have a base model volkswagen touareg uh, 170 tdi and then we also have a i just lost my spot we have a, a kia sportage s uh, entry-level diesel model with all-wheel drive and then in uh, i left the best to last in melbourne we're getting a honda civic type r so i'm very excited to see that i hope it's in the white I, I hope so then i'm moving from melbourne to sydney we have uh, i would love to be able to drive this we have the subaru outback sport xt which is obviously uh, the turbocharged model beyond that we also have a nissan pathfinder til and then the last model uh, car that we have in sydney is a, a hyundai venue elite so those are all the cars we have in the garage for this week and what about travel jack who is headed where yeah, so we have um, yourself, Scott. <laughs> I knew you were kind of leading up to that. So, yeah, Scott is um, heading over to Japan uh, with Mitsubishi to do some really cool things that I don't know if he can talk about yet, but uh, he's heading off to Japan, I think, uh, Wednesday this week. So by the time you listen to this, you might he might have already been gone, but he's going this week to Japan. And beyond that, we also have a Honda roundtable meeting. And then, yeah, I'll, I'll leave the next week events till next week's podcast. Perfect. Jack, thank you for your time today. Thank you very much, Scott.